Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 58 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today, I'll be sharing some of my own research in another solo episode, this time about espionage during the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. The space race was a decades-long competition in which the two superpowers sought to outshine each other with scientific and technological breakthroughs from low Earth orbit all the way to the moon and beyond. Now, this episode is not a comprehensive look at everything that occurred during that period. That would be impossible to cover in just one episode, in fact. Instead, I'm going to highlight some of the most interesting aspects and anecdotes that I've been able to find so far. I plan to return to this subject more in the future, especially if I can get some more experts on the show to talk about it in depth. So even after this episode, watch for more stories and perspectives on the space race from me coming soon. What's so amazing about it to me is that it wasn't just a matter of taking humanity to new heights in the most literal sense of the word. It was also a race for superior technology, which would provide economic and industrial advantages to the winner. It was a campaign for a new territory of strategic value, or in other words, an effort to gain the high ground over an adversary. And it was a cultural competition to see which side possessed the most brilliant minds and the bravest pioneers. But underneath all of that, was a cutthroat struggle by intelligence agencies to steal anything they could, to mislead and sabotage one another, and above all, to establish dominance above planet Earth and maybe one day the entire solar system. But first, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Dave E. and Erica S. Your monthly contributions there Help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. One of the most important things to remember about the space race is that in a very real sense, it began with a highly controversial and amoral intelligence operation in the immediate aftermath of Germany's defeat at the end of World War II. I'm referring to Operation Paperclip, which many of you are probably already familiar with. For those of you who are not, Operation Paperclip was a large-scale effort to locate, evaluate, and recruit talented German scientists, engineers, and technicians into U.S. industry and government positions. Many of these Germans had been Nazi Party members, and a few were even involved in human experimentation or tried at Nuremberg for war crimes. In February 1945, with the end of World War II on the horizon, 
the big three allied powers held a conference in Yalta and another one later in Potsdam, Germany, to discuss the aftermath of the war. They decided to take war reparations from Germany once peace was secured to make up for the losses that they had suffered over the past six years. After the end of World War I, Germany was required to pay monetary reparations, but this wound up causing a lot more problems than it was worth in the end trying to secure those debt payments, for example. So the Allies just decided they would confiscate practically all of German industry, especially anything involved in the manufacture of armaments and war material. The Yalta Conference also included an agreement that German labor would be included in the war reparations. So it was very clear to the Allies during the war years that German technology and research and development were far ahead in a number of very important areas. These included aeronautics, rocketry, chemical and biological weapons. There were grave concerns among American military and civilian leadership that Germany might also be ahead in their own nuclear weapons development program when compared to our own Manhattan Project. Fortunately, the German program was stalled for several different reasons, and they were not particularly close to developing their own nuclear bombs by the time they were defeated. That story will likely be featured in a future episode of this podcast. German rocket technology, on the other hand, was the best in the world. V-2 rockets could be launched from 200 miles away to rain down on London in the United Kingdom beginning in about September of 1944. They were more than 40 feet long, and they carried a 2,200-pound warhead. Because of their mobile launchers, they were nearly impossible to intercept, either on the ground or once they were in the air on the way to the target. In just six months from the fall of 1944 through the spring of 1945, more than 3,000 V-2s hit targets all over Western Europe and killed thousands of people. Had they been introduced earlier in the war, they likely would have been a decisive factor in its outcome. Consequently, finding the men who developed the V-2 was a very high priority for both the U.S. and Soviet governments. The best known of all these scientists was Werner von Braun, the technical director at the Pinamunda Army Research Center where the V-2 was designed and built. He worked at Pinamunda for eight years, beginning in 1936 when he was just 24 years old. He was an ardent and enthusiastic Nazi Party member, but when the tide of the war turned against Germany, he and around 100 of his top personnel surrendered themselves to Allied forces rather than risk being captured by Soviet troops moving in from the east. So falling into the hands of the Allies was far more preferable to them than into the hands of the Soviets. As part of Operation Paperclip, all of these scientists and technicians, along with thousands of others from a wide variety of industries, were debriefed by agents from the Army's Counterintelligence Corps. The agents of the CIC were tasked to determine which of them might make a genuinely valuable contribution to U.S. national defense and which of them were unskilled or, you know, just like hangers-on in their respective programs. For that reason, the Germans were practically competing with each other for a limited number of all-expense-paid trips to the United States 
So they all went to great efforts to demonstrate their value and explain everything that they'd been working on for the Third Reich. In fact, Operation Paperclip took its name because the files of every German selected for recruitment had a paperclip attached to delineate them from the non-selectees. By the time Operation Paperclip ended, around 1,600 German scientists from all these different fields of study were brought to the U.S. along with their families. Over the next 25 years, Von Braun himself was working at Redstone Arsenal near Huntsville, Alabama, before being inducted into NASA, the brand new National Aeronautics and Space Administration, where he was integral, integral to the design and construction of the Saturn rockets, which carried the Apollo astronauts into space. He retired from NASA as a deputy associate administrator for planning at NASA headquarters in 1972. He's a very well-known figure from that era and arguably one of the most recognizable scientists of all time. He's been called the father of space travel and even appeared with Walt Disney in several documentary programs about the future of space travel. It's kind of hard to imagine this guy. It's, it's pretty incredible that he was right there beside Walt Disney receiving lots of awards and, and recognition in the United States, considering that while he was the technical director at Pinamunda, he used slave laborers to construct the V-2 rockets in an underground factory. These slaves were living in terrible conditions and thousands of them died of disease without coming up above ground again. But after that, his sins and the sins of so many other Germans were essentially washed away because now they were useful to the United States. While Operation Paperclip was going on, the Soviets themselves were recruiting as many German scientists as possible for the exact same reason. They also had the added advantage of capturing the Pinamunda facility itself. So not only did they have personnel, but they had the design facilities and the machinery as well, all of which they packed up and shipped back to the USSR for exploitation. The most significant event in this entire process was Operation Osavahim, which took place overnight between October 21st and 22nd, 1946. Although the aim was essentially the same as America's Operation Paperclip, Osavahim was carried out in Soviet fashion with threats and violence. Because they controlled all of what later became East Germany, Soviet soldiers and intelligence personnel from the MVD, which was an organization that preceded the KGB, rounded up approximately 2,500 scientists and skilled workers and transported them to their new lives in the USSR. A CIA report written in 1947, which was declassified in 1999, stated that the selected personnel in the Soviet zone were told on the afternoon of the 21st of October, that their jobs were being transferred to the Soviet Union, and they themselves would be leaving the following day for a period of five years. The workers returned home to pack some belongings before reporting to designated train stations with their families very early the following morning. Their journey took several weeks, you know, via train, multiple trains, I'm sure, before they arrived at their new homes in the Soviet Union. A few of the selected personnel that the Soviets wanted to take with them didn't live in the Soviet zone. They lived in the American and British zones. These individuals were picked up as they departed their jobs on the 21st 
and taken directly to the awaiting trains with no opportunity to pack any belongings or say goodbye to their neighbors, anything. Three Russian men in civilian clothing also attempted to kidnap at least one engineer from the American zone, but they were forced to flee when the local police arrived in time. Another engineer named Vogel refused to depart with the Soviets as he was ordered, and the CIA's informant in this report stated that he and his wife and children were executed after resisting. Not all of them went involuntarily, though. In fact, it was believed that many of the Germans were happy to resettle in the USSR, although I suspect they might have changed their minds once they arrived. The workers were generally paid as well or better than skilled Soviet workers, but that still did not translate to a high quality of life. Some, but not all, of these workers began returning to East Germany over the next five to eight years, and they resumed their lives as best they could. These German scientists and engineers also made huge contributions to Soviet aviation and aerospace technology. But not surprisingly, the Soviets kept secret their use of German personnel for many years, claiming that it was all Russian innovation that was driving their technological revolution in the early first decade or so of the space race. So speaking of the early decade, prior to the development and proliferation of spy satellites, the U.S. had to rely on a couple of other means for collecting intelligence on its adversaries from on high. There was a secret program called Project Genetrix, which launched balloons equipped with downward-facing cameras in an enclosed gondola. The balloons would launch from Western Europe and Turkey, and were meant to travel with the jet stream all the way across Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and even China from west to east, taking pictures the whole time. The U.S. Air Force started the project in 1946, but it was taken over by the CIA and renamed to Genetrix in 1955. The project built on lessons learned from earlier use of weather balloons for normal scientific research missions over the United States. The idea, it had a lot of potential. The balloons flew at altitudes of between 50 and 100,000 feet, which was much higher than most Soviet bloc air defenses of the time could reach. The balloons were unmanned, of course, so there was no risk of capture or loss of life. They were equipped with radio beacons that transmitted a signal every two minutes so their location could be tracked. Then when they made it all the way across the USSR and were close to U.S. forces stationed in Japan and South Korea, they could be recovered. Well, in early 1956, 516 of these Genetrix balloons were launched from sites in Europe and Turkey over a period of 27 days. Unfortunately, only 44 of the 516 balloons were actually recovered at the end of the mission, and only 34 of those had taken any useful photos at all. So fewer than a 10% success rate with this program initially. Most of the photos were of empty wilderness, of course, since that is what constituted the majority of Soviet territory at the time, and probably still to this day. But even those photos were useful to document any future development in those areas. And one of the balloons in particular got photos of a previously unknown nuclear refinery near the town of Dodonovo in Siberia. But the remaining 472 spy balloons either disappeared or were shot down. 
as it turned out, there was an unexpected reason why the balloons were vulnerable to Soviet air defenses. They had a tendency to sink to a lower altitude at nighttime due to the corresponding drop in temperature. That meant that conditions were perfect at sunrise for a MiG fighter plane to intercept them when they became visible at dawn and they were still low enough altitude to be targeted. Consequently, hundreds of these balloons were lost, then recovered by the Soviet government and their Eastern European allies. They ended up putting parts from an estimated 250 Genetrix balloons on display in Moscow in February 1956 and made formal protests to the U.S. government with ample evidence to back them up. President Eisenhower quickly ended the program since the potential for embarrassment and confrontation outweighed the potential for valuable intelligence collection. But despite the lack of usable photography, there was one unanticipated benefit to the program. Initially, the balloons were thought to be small enough not to appear on Soviet radar systems of that era. However, there was a steel rod built inside the gondola exactly 91 centimeters in length, which connected the balloon's rigging and the camera payload together, kind of holding the whole setup together. That 91 centimeter rod corresponded perfectly to the wavelength of the frequency of the P-20 token Soviet radar system. So the bar would resonate every time a pulse from the token radar system passed by. While this also made the balloons more vulnerable to Soviet air defenses, allowed it more easily tracked, it let the U.S. and NATO radar operators locate lots of the token radar system sites which were previously unknown, and it provided insight into other air defense systems and how ground-based personnel worked to vector fighter aircraft towards a target. All of this new information would be useful in the near future once the brand new U-2 spy planes began their overflights of the Soviet Union. So while Project Genetrix failed to meet expectations overall, it was not a complete loss by any means. There was one surprising endnote for Genetrix, which didn't appear for more than 60 years. In 1962, seven years after the project ended, one of the gondolas was found crashed in a forest by a local citizen near the town of Moncton, New Brunswick, in southeastern Canada, of all places, very, very, very far from where they had intended to locate them, you know, in the ocean, in the Sea of Japan, that sort of thing. The finder, his name was David McPherson Sr. Of course, he knew nothing about Project Genetrix. It was highly secret operation at that time. But he used his tractor to transport this, the gondola and the parachute back home. He immediately assumed it was some sort of spy equipment, but he didn't try opening it up. David and his family took lots of photos before they alerted authorities to their find. <clears throat> well, not long after that, the Canadian Army arrived and took possession of the mysterious plastic box with a promise to update the family when they knew more. Of course, that never happened. David Sr. spent the next five decades filing official requests for information with many different government agencies in Canada and the U.S. Uh, he even sent a request for information to the Spy Museum. He never received any substantial answers of what he'd found in the woods before he passed away in early 2016. But a year and a half later, his son, David McPherson Jr., spoke to journalists from CBC News who ran a story about the 55-year-old mystery. Almost immediately, several amateur Cold War historians contacted CBC 
with declassified documents detailing Project Genetrics. So although David McPherson Sr. never learned what he found that day in the woods, at least his own son was able to put the mystery to rest and vindicate his own father's theories. And I think, you know, this story also goes to show that amateur Cold War historians provide a valuable service to their community. You could almost call them heroes, in fact. I wouldn't, but, you know, some people might. Apart from the failed balloon concept with genetrics, the U.S. also used reconnaissance aircraft to fly near or even through contested airspace for taking photographs or for collecting different types of electronics or signals intelligence. Probably the best known examples of these flights were the U-2 spy plane flights over China and the Soviet Union, which began in the late 1950s. Prior to the introduction of the U-2, several other aircraft performed similar roles, including converted World War II bombers. Over the years, a number of these were shot down, and in some cases, the crews were killed or never accounted for, particularly if they crashed in Soviet territory. You can hear a lot more about these flights in my interview with Robert Hopkins III in an earlier episode. The U-2 came online not long after Project Genetrics ended, and it represented a major leap in performance. It could fly much higher and much farther than any earlier reconnaissance platform, and its enormous cameras built by the Hikon Manufacturing Company could photograph huge swaths of territory in great detail. The first few U-2 flights provided previously unimaginable photographic access to Soviet and Chinese territory. But these manned flights also represented a unique vulnerability, which was highlighted for the entire world on May 1st, 1960, when pilot Francis Gary Powers was shot down over the USSR. His highly publicized trial and his eventual exchange in 1962 at the Glenicky Bridge between East and West Germany are two of the events that helped define the Cold War. It's also important to understand that the Soviets didn't have anything approaching that capability for overflights that the U.S. and its NATO allies possessed. This was due, in large part, to the geography of the United States, with the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans to the east and west, and friendly countries to our north and south, mostly friendly countries anyway, there were virtually no options for basing aircraft or personnel nearby other than in Cuba. And the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 proved how the U.S. would react to a major Soviet buildup there. After that, the option was essentially off the table. Meanwhile, the U.S. and its allies practically had the Soviet bloc surrounded in comparison. So developing spy satellites that could take high-resolution photos of practically anything in the adversary's home country was the solution that both countries sought. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes 
invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. Right from the start of both space programs, there was an intent to weaponize space vehicles, both for offense and defense. In the same way that the Soviets had shot down Genetrix's balloons and reconnaissance aircraft whenever possible, they set their sights on American satellites as well. One of the earliest examples of this was the Estribatel Sputnikov, or IS for short, which translates to satellite destroyer. The idea was proposed in 1959, just two years after the successful flight of Sputnik 1. The concept called for a small interceptor, which would be launched on top of a ballistic missile. Once it achieved orbit and separated from the launch vehicle, it would be guided part of the way towards the targeted satellite by a ground-based crew. Once it got close, it could switch to its own self-contained terminal guidance system. The IS's own engine was equipped with 17 directional thrusters, and it could quickly start, stop, and restart as needed. It carried enough fuel for a 300-second runtime, which was enough for a one-way flight leading up to impact with the target. The IS could carry a 300-kilogram warhead, so that's well over 600 pounds, and towards the end of its development cycle, could achieve a 2-kilometer effective kill radius when it approached its target from the rear. Design work began in 1960 and the first test vehicle launched in late 1963 without the explosive warhead. The IS itself performed well right from the start, but there were multiple setbacks with the missile, which had been adapted to deliver it into orbit. Testing continued through the remainder of the 1960s and the IS successfully destroyed at least seven satellite test targets. When the U.S. and USSR agreed to limit weapons development during the first strategic arms limitation talks in 1972, the program went into hibernation. Meanwhile, the U.S. was also developing its own offensive capability called Project SAINT. SAINT stood for Satellite Interceptor, S-A-I-N-T, Satellite Interceptor. Unlike the Soviet IS system, though, SAINT did not progress into a working interceptor before it was canceled, in 1962 by President Kennedy. There were a couple of key differences in vision for Saint, though. For one, the Saint would be used to approach and inspect Soviet satellites and would be equipped with television cameras, lights for illumination, radiation detectors, and infrared sensors. It would also have defensive countermeasures such as anti-jamming provisions in case the Soviet satellites had defenses of its own. For another, in the event that it was used to destroy the satellite in question, it wasn't equipped with an explosive warhead. It would just strike the target directly at high speed to destroy it. Overall, this was an incredibly ambitious concept for the late 1950s, so it probably comes as no surprise that it went wildly over budget without ever producing a working prototype. Possibly one of the best kept secrets of the entire space race was an intelligence collection operation targeting a Soviet space vehicle, which took place one night in Mexico City 
1959, and which remained undiscovered for nearly 30 years. This operation wasn't just an opportunity to steal documents or take a few photographs. Instead, a team from the CIA planned to hijack the vehicle overnight for a complete examination. Because of the Soviets' early lead in the space race, they were understandably very proud of their recent accomplishments and eager to showcase them to the rest of the world. There was a huge exhibition on an international tour where industrial machinery and finished products from the USSR could be seen so as to entice more economic and international trade. This exhibition was already in motion when someone within their government hierarchy decided to show off their newest space exploration technology as well. <clears throat> in a case like this, you'd expect there to be a mock-up of a vehicle on display. But when someone from the Central Intelligence Agency attended the exhibition, they reported that it looked like a real delivery vehicle was out in full public view. The vehicle was the upper stage of a Luna 8K72 rocket, which could carry a 600-pound probe into orbit. One of these vehicles launched in October 1959, and the probe that it carried into space captured the first ever pictures of the dark side of the moon, which was yet another major accomplishment for the Soviet space program. So it's easy to see why an opportunity to examine one of these vehicles would be such a high priority for the CIA. While the vehicle was on display in one major city, personnel assigned there were able to get access to the display overnight. But it looks to me like they may not have been trained specialists, so this might have been a short-notice opportunity that they were able to capitalize on. It's not totally clear. The team there took photos and returned them to headquarters, where a decision was made to try again, this time with a four-man team from the Joint Factory Marking Center. At first glance, that's kind of a mundane name for a team of guys planning to steal a spacecraft, but their normal duties were to closely examine anything manufactured in the Soviet Union and try to determine which specific factories had manufactured which components, all by cataloging as much information related to serial numbers and markings as possible. That is usually what I would call, you know, kind of the, the more boring side, the less flashy side of espionage. There's a great deal of painstaking effort that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, most of us don't really pay attention to, quite frankly. This Joint Factory Marking Center was a collaborative project between the CIA and the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, hence the joint in their name. <clears throat> Not only was this a chance to learn about the Soviet space program, but the team could probably learn a lot about the rocket which launched it as well. The Soviets were using their own repurposed ballistic missiles as launch vehicles, and of course, some of those same missiles might potentially be fired at the United States or its allies one day. So any opportunity to learn more about their capabilities was worthwhile. When the vehicle made its way to Mexico City a few weeks later, the CIA was ready. They had a good working relationship with Mexico's intelligence agency called the Federal Security Directorate. The exhibition would be open for three weeks before moving on, so there was time to plan out the heist. Earlier concepts for the operation had been considered, such as trying to get to it while it was on board a train from the shipping port to the exhibition grounds, but nothing so far seemed realistic. One of the main reasons for that 
was that they didn't think they'd be able to get very clear photos or as clear as they needed if they were on a moving train at the time, which, you know, makes perfect sense. Finally, they decided to seize the delivery vehicle as it was leaving the exhibition for its journey to the next city on the tour. The evening after the exhibit closed, the Luna was packed up in a massive shipping crate, 17 feet long and more than eight feet wide, really just enormous. It was loaded onto a cargo truck for transport to its next destination, along with everything else from the exhibit. Both the CIA team and their Mexican partners were ready. They ensured that the target vehicle was the last one to depart that night. After a Soviet handler watched it drive away, he left. He had no way to communicate with the handler who would receive it at the rail yard later that night, and nothing had been amiss when the truck convoy left. The truck driver himself had already been co-opted, so he drove to a prearranged location and stopped the trunk. truck. The convoy continued on without him, and another driver took over. The original driver just spent the night in a hotel and was presumably paid well for his part in the operation. A surveillance team at the next rail yard watched the convoy arrive, short one truck, and as expected, the Soviet guy there just closed the gate when the last truck drove in and walked away. There was no real system in place to ensure that nothing had disappeared along the way, so now they knew that the Luna vehicle was theirs for the night. It was driven to an empty lot surrounded by a tall fence to shield them from anyone passing by. So then the four men from the Joint Factory Marking Center removed the roof from the crate and used ladders to climb down inside. They spent the rest of the night photographing the complete interior, taking swabs of propellant residue for further analysis, and collecting other information. They even broke an anti-tamper seal inside for better access and replaced it with a perfect copy that Mexico City Station had made for the occasion. And all the while, plainclothes personnel kept surveillance on the perimeter in case the Soviets realized that something had gone wrong and came looking for their vehicle. The whole operation went smoothly, and the following day, the vehicle, the Luna vehicle, was delivered to the rail yard with the Soviets none the wiser. It was the perfect heist that the Soviets apparently never discovered. In 1987, Eduardo Diaz Silvetti, the Mexican intelligence agent who was their lead man on the operation, published a Spanish-language book about it called Sequestro, which means hijack or kidnapping. And then in 1995, the CIA declassified a report which summarized the operation, although it didn't provide a lot of specific details on how useful that information gathered turned out to be. But no matter how much it narrowed the gap between the two countries, it was an incredible operation. At the same time, or about the same time, it wasn't just brand new technical, it wasn't just brand new high-tech airborne systems that were gathering intelligence in those days, of course. Those would continue to grow in capability and in budget for many years to come. But just as it always has, human intelligence activity had an important role to play as well. In fact, one of the most important Soviet spies of the space race was also one of the least known. His name was Anatoly Kotlovi, and he was a chemist employed at the Reaction Motors Division of Fiacol Chemical Company in New Jersey. The Reaction Motors Division was working on incredibly dangerous chemical compounds, which would be used as solid fuel rocket propellant in the years to come. Anatoly had emigrated from the Soviet Union after World War II. 
during the war, he served in the Red Army and was captured by German forces during Operation Barbarossa. He spent the remainder of the war in various POW camps, all of which were horribly cruel and disease-ridden hellholes. Thousands of his fellow prisoners died, mostly of disease and malnutrition, but Anatoly somehow survived. There aren't many publicly available records on Anatoly's life, so most of what is known about him now comes from a pair of KGB agents who wrote about him in their memoirs, plus an article written by a scientist named Joseph Castellano, who worked with Anatoly from 1962 until 1965. It's not really clear how Anatoly learned chemistry or how he immigrated to the United States or even how he was hired to work on such a sensitive project in the middle of the Cold War. But we do know that he wasn't a particularly devout communist until he married a Chinese woman. She was a committed Maoist and influenced him in a big way. So by 1959, Anatoly was already working on sensitive research, and he approached another Russian citizen in New York City who was working as a journalist for Radio Moscow. As it turns out, this was Oleg Kalugin, a young KGB officer who would go on to become the youngest general in KGB history in later years. Anatoly became Kalugin's very first asset in the United States, and he proved to be a great catch. The reason he was so important was that solid rocket fuel was replacing liquid fuel that had previously been used in most rocket designs up until that point. Solid fuel doesn't have to be stored in an internal tank or piped anywhere like liquid fuel does. In large missiles and rockets, it is precast to the internal dimensions of the fuselage. Once it's perfected, it's more stable and can be stored safely for longer periods of time with no upkeep like liquid fuel needs. It also ignites almost instantaneously and burns continuously until it's totally depleted. All of that meant that it was ideal for intercontinental ballistic missiles because they might sit in their silos for years on end. But if launch officers turn their keys because Soviet missiles are already in the air, they can get airborne in just a few seconds to avoid being destroyed while they're still in their launch tubes. <clears throat> in fact, Anatoly was specifically working on the fuel for the brand new Minuteman ICBMs that were in development and slated to enter service in the mid-1960s replacing the Atlas and Titan missiles already online. The Minuteman was bigger, faster, had longer range, and would carry a one megaton warhead. So you can see why having a spy inside of that lab was so important to the Soviets. Anatoly continued reporting to Kalugin for the next five years, providing scientific documents on the development of rocket fuel in his division. It's important to remember here that the Soviets had a pronounced lead in the early years of the space race, and knowing what the United States was up to certainly helped them to maintain that lead. In 1964, the FBI began investigating Anatoly. I'm not completely sure why, but I did find one declassified document stating that the famous defector Yuri Nosenko had identified Anatoly as a Soviet spy. However, that same memorandum seems to say that Anatoly was already under investigation at that point, so I'm not really sure what the catalyst for all of that was. But nevertheless, his role as a spy was coming to an end. The FBI interviewed him one day, but didn't have enough evidence on hand to arrest or charge him. 
Anatoly didn't wait around for them to get to it either. He and his wife boarded a flight to Moscow via Paris almost immediately and never returned to the United States. Unfortunately for him, things didn't turn out well once he was back home in the Soviet Union. Maybe he'd become too Americanized during his years here, but even as an ardent communist, he was vocally critical of the Soviet system once he saw it in practice again. Never a good idea, of course. The KGB quickly started to investigate their former star asset as a possible double agent. Once again, they didn't have enough evidence that he was a spy, but they charged him with fraud in a currency exchange sting operation, and Anatoly was sent to prison for eight years after having already spent most of World War II in a prisoner of war camp. According to Oleg Kalugin, he never believed that Anatoly had been turned by the Americans, and Kalugin tried to advocate for him, but that wasn't enough to get him out of prison early. When they did finally meet again, Anatoly told Kalugin that he regretted the day that they'd ever met all those years back in New York City. After that, it seems like Anatoly disappeared off the radar. So maybe his run of bad luck caught between three different world superpowers finally ended. <clears throat> By about 1975, the space race was effectively over, primarily because the USSR had shelved their own program intended to land cosmonauts on the moon. Despite all of their achievements in space, and there were many, it was clear by that point that the U.S. had won the race in the eyes of the world. So while it was no longer called the space race, there was still no shortage of espionage activity directed at either side's space programs. In April 1972, NASA approved a design for their next generation vehicle, the space shuttle. It's very familiar to all of us now, but a reusable cargo carrying vehicle capable of landing back on Earth was a tremendous leap forward at the time. Although it would occasionally be used to transport Department of Defense satellites into orbit in the future, the space shuttle was not really built with military objectives in mind. One of the major benefits of a reusable shuttle was that it would be able to greatly reduce the cost of lifting cargo into orbit, which was already astronomically expensive, pardon the pun, you might not be surprised to learn that those alleged cost savings never actually materialized, you know, government efficiency and accountability being what it is. However, when Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev was first briefed on the American shuttle program in 1974, long before it took its first flight, he and the rest of Soviet leadership feared that the shuttle was in fact going to be used as an orbital bomber. They worried that it might carry nuclear weapons into orbit in its cargo bay and would be able to quickly divert from its announced orbit to fly directly over Moscow and destroy it. Such an attack could be carried out with practically no warning and no time to react. The Soviets also enacted two major strategies in response to learning of NASA's shuttle program. First, they set out to learn everything they could about the shuttle design, performance, and capabilities. Second, they set out to build their own shuttle. The fact that the American shuttle didn't actually have a military purpose, as the Soviets feared, made it far easier for them to collect information on it. The Soviet agency most directly involved was the Military Industrial Commission, which went by the acronym VPK. VPK provided their requirements to the KGB, 
which set its own people to find the information. This turned out to be far easier than you might think. In fact, it turned into what is now regarded as possibly the very first case of online internet-based espionage. The shuttle program right from the start was unclassified in its entirety. All the technical documentation that could be purchased by anyone who was interested. And the Soviets were very, very interested, of course. Their agents in the U.S. and elsewhere simply combed through some of the earliest electronic databases in existence for technical documents and purchased anything that might be useful to their own development programs. They were also able to acquire reports from the U.S. Commerce Department's National Technical Information Service. A CIA report from 1985 indicated that the Soviets were actively seeking and finding technical information through these methods from the mid-1970s on. In just one example, in 1980, the Soviets spent the equivalent of $140,000 for documents pertaining to the shuttle's control system. But that $140,000 expenditure probably saved them millions of dollars and years of development time for their own shuttle program. They weren't just purchasing unclassified documents on the shuttle either. According to the same CIA report, they also gathered technical information on the F-15 fighter, the Sidewinder air-to-air missile, the Red Eye shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missile, and the B-52 bomber, plus the latest computers from IBM, communications technology, and practically everything else that might give them a military or economic edge. Besides purchasing technical information, they also employed all the other methods for economic espionage that are very common today. That includes attending scientific conferences and trade shows to elicit information or form relationships with potential sources, and the use of traditional sources within defense contractors or agencies who would provide classified information for money. So for all those reasons, the Soviets got a major jump start on their own shuttle program. It still required a tremendous amount of money to build, but the Soviets already had a very robust aerospace industry, even if it was a little bit behind the curve. Plus, taking into account the high priority of the program for Soviet leadership, their shuttle program was well on its way very quickly. In order to test the heat shield for their new design, Soviet engineers built a half-scale model of a reusable space plane. It was designated the BOR-4 and carried no crew members. It was launched into space and reached speeds up to Mach 24 before re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and splashing down in the Indian Ocean. In March 1983, a P-3 Orion reconnaissance plane from the Royal Australian Air Force took photos of a Soviet trawler recovering a BOR-4 space plane from the ocean. This was the Western world's first look at the BOR-4, and it probably turned a lot of heads in the intelligence community at the time. But the BOR-4 was never used for more than a testbed design with a few limited applications. Even though the VPK had a major head start on research and development, their own program suffered plenty of setbacks and obstacles. Unlike NASA's design, the Soviet shuttle program called Buran which means snowstorm, was intended primarily for military use. The NASA shuttle made its first flights in 1981, and when the Buran shuttle appeared in 1984, it appeared to be practically identical to the American version. 
to the untrained eye, there is virtually no difference between the two, which of course was a clear indication that so much of the baseline development was copied directly from the original American documentation. The Bruin continued development through the 1980s, but for all of the money and effort and espionage activity that went into it, the Soviet shuttle was launched into space just one time in November 1988. Unlike the American shuttle, the Buran was capable of unmanned flight and landing, which was used successfully during this flight. So no cosmonaut ever flew into orbit in the Buran. After that flight, the program was canceled. That's not surprising considering that the Soviet Union itself was on the brink of collapse at the time. Since then, the remaining Buran shuttles have been mothballed and abandoned. The NASA shuttle launched a total of 135 times before they were two were retired from service in 2011. The NASA shuttle program itself has received its fair share of criticism and, of course, suffered many shortfalls and disasters over the years, but it was far more successful than its Soviet copy. The space race as a whole was an incredibly fascinating period of history for so many reasons, if you ask me. The geopolitics, the scientific and technical achievements, the military strategy, and of course, the espionage activity all provide practically endless opportunities for study. These were some of the most interesting highlights of all for me, but they don't even begin to tell the whole story. I will definitely be returning to this subject in the future, and I'm already looking forward to that. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.